Before the Dawn, A Story of the Fall of Richmond by Joseph A. Altscheller Published by Doubleday, Page, and Company, April 1903 Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com Read by John Bruzes You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast Chapter 26. Calypso. It was announced that the presidential reception on the following evening would be of special dignity and splendor, and it was thought the part of duty by all who were of consequence in Richmond to attend and make a brave show before the world. Mr. Davis, at the feudal peace conference in the preceding July, had sought to impress upon the northern delegates the superior position of the South, It was true, he said, that Sherman was before Atlanta, but what matter if he took it? The world must have the southern cotton crop, and with such an asset the southern republic must stand. He was not inclined now to withdraw in any particular from this position, and his people stood solidly behind him. Prescott, as he prepared for the evening, had much of the same spirit, although his was now a feeling of personal defiance toward a group of persons rather than toward the North in general. "'Are you going alone?' asked his mother. "'Why, yes, mother, unless you will go with me, and I know you won't. Whom else could I ask?' "'I thought you might take Miss Catherwood,' she replied without evasion. "'No chance there,' replied Prescott with a light laugh. "'Why not?' "'Miss Catherwood would scorn a humble individual like myself.' The beautiful Yankee looks far higher. She will be escorted tonight by the brilliant, the accomplished, the powerful and subtle gentleman, the Honorable James Sefton. You surprise me, said his mother, and her look was indeed full of astonishment and inquiry, as if some plan of hers had gone astray. I have heard the secretary's name mentioned once or twice in connection with hers, she said, but I did not know that his attentions had shifted completely from Helen Harley. Men are indeed changeable creatures. Are you just discovering that at your age, mother? asked Prescott lightly. I believe Lucia Catherwood too noble a woman to love a man like James Sefton, she said. Why, what do you know of Miss Catherwood? His mother did not answer him, and presently Prescott went to the reception. But early as he was, Colonel Harley, the two editors, and others were there before him. Colonel Harley, as Raymond termed it, was extremely peacocky. He wore his most gorgeous raiment, and in addition he was clothed about with vanity. Already he was whispering in the ear of Mrs. Markham, who had renewed her freshness, her youth, and her liveliness. "'If I were General Markham,' said Raymond cynically, "'I'd detail a guard of my most faithful soldiers to stand about my wife.' "'Do you think she needs all that protection?' asked Winthrop." "'Well, no, she doesn't need it, but it may save others,' replied Raymond with exceeding frankness. Winthrop merely laughed and did not dispute the comment. The next arrival of importance was that of Helen Harley and General Wood. Colonel Harley frowned, but his sister's eyes did not meet his, and the look of the mountaineer was so lofty and fearless that he was a bold man indeed who would have challenged him, even with a frown. Helen was all in white, and to Prescott she seemed some summer flower, so pure, so snowy, 
and so gentle was she. But the general, acting upon Prescott's advice, had evidently taken his courage in his hands and arrayed himself as one who hoped to conquer. His gigantic figure was enclosed for the first time since Prescott had known him in a well-fitting uniform, and his great black mane of hair and beard had been trimmed by one who knew his business. The effect was striking and picturesque. Prescott remembered to have read long ago in a child's book of natural history that the black-maned lion was the loftiest and boldest of his kind, and General Wood seemed to him now to be the finest of the black-maned lions. There was a shade of embarrassment in the manner of Helen Harley when she greeted Prescott. She, too, had recollections. Perhaps she had fancied once, like Prescott, that she had loved when she did not love. But her hesitation was over in a moment, and she held out her hand warmly. "'We heard of your return from the South,' she said. "'Why haven't you been to see us?' Prescott made some excuse about the pressure of duty, and then, bearing his friend's interest in mind, spoke of General Wood, who was now in conversation some distance away with the President himself. "'I believe that General Wood is tonight the most magnificent figure in the South,' he said. "'It is well that Mr. Davis greets him warmly. He ought to. No man under the rank of General Lee has done more for the Confederacy.' His voice had all the accent of sincerity, and Helen looked up at him, thanking him silently with her eyes. "'Then you like General Wood,' she said. "'I am proud to have him as a friend, and I should dislike very much to have him as an enemy.' Richmond, in its best garb and with its bravest face, was now arriving fast, and Prescott drifted with some of his friends into one of the smaller parlors. When he returned to the larger room, it was crowded, and many voices mingled there. But all noise ceased suddenly, and then, in the hush, someone said, "'There she comes!' Prescott knew who was meant, and his anger hardened in him. Miss Catherwood was looking unusually well, and even those who had dubbed her the beautiful Yankee added another superlative adjective. A spot of bright red burned in either cheek, and she held her head very high. How haughty she is, Prescott heard someone say. Her height, her figure, her look lent color to that comment. Her glance met Prescott's, and she bowed to him, as to any other man whom she knew, and then, with the secretary beside her, Obviously proud of the lady with whom he had come, she received the compliments of her host. Lucia Catherwood did not seem to be conscious that everybody was looking at her. Yet she knew it well, and realized that the gaze was a singular mixture of curiosity, like, and dislike. It could not well be otherwise, when there was so much beauty to inspire admiration or jealousy and where there were sentiments known to be different from those of all the others present. A mystery as tantalizing as it was seductive, together with a faint touch of scandal, which some had contrived to blow upon her name, though not enough really to injure her as yet, sufficed to give a spice to the conversation when she was its subject. The President engaged her in talk for a few minutes. He himself clad in a grayish-brown suit of foreign manufacture, was looking thin and old, the slight stoop in his shoulders showing perceptibly. But he brightened up with southern gallantry as he talked to Miss Catherwood. He seemed to find an attraction 
not only in her beauty and dignity, but in her opinions as well, and the ease with which she expressed them. He held her longer than any other guest, and Mr. Sefton was the third of three, facile, smiling, explaining how they wished to make a convert of Miss Catherwood, and yet expected to do so. Here in Richmond, surrounded by truth and with her eyes open to it, she must soon see the error of her ways. He, James Sefton, would vouch for it. I have no doubt, Mr. Sefton, that you will contribute to that end, said the President. She was the center of a group presently, and the group included the Secretary, Redfield, Garvin, and two or three Europeans then visiting in Richmond. Prescott, afar in a corner of the room, watched her covertly. She was animated by some unusual spirit, and her eyes were brilliant. Her speech, too, was scintillating. The little circle sparkled with laughter and jest. They undertook to taunt her, though with good humor, on her northern sympathies, and she replied in like vein, meeting all their arguments and predicting the fall of Richmond. Then, Miss Catherwood, we shall all come to you for our written protection, said Garvin. Oh, I shall grant it, she said. The Union will have nothing to fear from you. But Garvin, unabashed at the general laugh at himself, returned to the charge. Prescott wandered further away, and presently was talking to Mrs. Markham, Harley being held elsewhere by bonds of courtesy that he could not break. Thus eddies of the crowd cast these two, as it were, upon a rock where they must find solace in each other, or not at all. Mrs. Markham was a woman of wit and beauty. Prescott often had remarked it, but had never with such a realizing sense. She was young, graceful, and with a face sufficiently supplied with natural roses, and above all, keen with intelligence. She wore a shade of light green, a color that harmonized wonderfully with the green tints that lurked here and there in the depth of her eyes. And once, when she gazed thoughtfully at her hand, Prescott noticed that it was very white and well-shaped. Well, Harley was at least a man of taste. Mrs. Markham was pliable, insinuating, and complimentary. She was smitten, too, by a sudden mad desire. Always she was alive with coquetry to her fingertips, and tonight she was aflame with it. But this quiet, grave young man, hitherto, had seemed to her unapproachable. She used to believe him in love with Helen Harley. Now she fancied him in love with someone else, and she knew his present frame of mind to be vexed irritation. Difficult conquests are those most valued, and here she saw an opportunity. He was so different from the others, too, that, wearied of easy victories, all her fighting blood was aroused. Mrs. Markham was adroit, and did not begin by flattering too much, nor by attacking any other woman. She was quietly sympathetic, spoke guardedly of Prescott's services in the war, and made a slight allusion to his difference in temperament from so many of the careless young men who fought without either forethought or present thought. Prescott found her presence soothing. Her quiet words smoothed away his irritation, and gradually, without knowing why, he began to have a better opinion of himself. He wondered at his own stupidity and not having noticed before what an admirable woman was Mrs. Markham, how much superior to others, and how beautiful. He saw the unsurpassed curve of her white arm where the sleeve fell back, 
and there were wonderful green tints lurking in the depths of her eyes. After all, he could not blame Harley, at least for admiration. They passed into one of the smaller rooms, and Prescott's sense of satisfaction increased. Here was one woman, and a woman of beauty and wit, too, who could appreciate him. They sat unnoticed in a corner and grew confidential. Once or twice she carelessly placed her hand upon his coat sleeve, but let it rest there only for a moment, and on each occasion he noticed that the hand and wrist were entirely worthy of the arm. It was a small hand, but the fingers were long, tapering and very white, each terminating in a rosy nail. Her face was close to his, and now and then he felt her light breath on his cheek. A thrill ran through his blood. It was very pleasant to sit in the smile of a witty and beautiful woman. He looked up. Lucia Catherwood was passing on the arm of a Confederate general, and for a moment her eyes flashed fire, but afterward became cold and unmoved. Her face was blank as a stone as she moved on, while Prescott sat red and confused. Mrs. Markham, seeming not to notice, spoke of Miss Catherwood, and she did not make the mistake of criticizing her. The beautiful Yankee deserves her name, she said. I know of no other woman who could become a veritable Helen of Troy, if she would. If she would, repeated Prescott. But will she? That I do not know. But I know, said Prescott recklessly, I think she will. Mrs. Markham did not reply. She was still the sympathetic friend, disagreeing just enough to incite triumphant and forgiving opposition. Even if she should, I do not know that I could wholly blame her, she said. I fancy that it is not easy for any woman of great beauty to concentrate her whole devotion on one man. It must seem to her that she is giving too much to an individual, however good he may be. Do you feel that way about it yourself, Mrs. Markham? I said a woman of great beauty. It is the same. Her serenity was not at all disturbed, and her hand rested lightly on his arm once more. You are a foolish boy, she said. When you pay compliments, do not pay them in such a blunt fashion. I could not help it. I had too good an excuse. She smiled slightly. Southern men are clever at flattery, she said, and the northern men, they say, are not. Perhaps on that account those of the North are more sincere. But we of the South often mean what we say, nevertheless. Had Prescott been watching her face, he might have seen a slight change of expression, a momentary look of alarm in the green depths of her eyes. Someone else was passing. But in another instant her face was as calm, as angelic as ever. She spoke of Helen Harley and her brave struggle, the evident devotion of General Wood, and the mixed comment with which it was received. "'Will he win her?' asked Prescott. "'I do not know, but somebody should rescue her from that selfish old father of hers. He claims to be the perfect type of the true Southern gentleman. He will tell you so if you ask him. But if he is, I prefer that the rest of the world should judge the South by a false type.' "'But General Wood is not without rivals,' said Prescott. I have often thought that he had one of the most formidable kind in the secretary, Mr. Sefton. He awaited her answer with eagerness. She was a woman of penetrating mind, and what she said would be worth considering. 
Regarding him again with that covert glance, she saw anxiety trembling on his lips, and she replied deliberately. The secretary himself is another proof of why a woman of beauty should not concentrate all her devotion on one man. You have seen him tonight and his assiduous attention to another woman. Captain Prescott, all men are fickle, with a few exceptions, perhaps. She gave him her most stimulating glance, a look tipped with flame, which said even to a dull intelligence, and Prescott's was not, that he was one of the few, the rare exceptions. As her talk became more insinuating, her hand touched his arm and rested there ten seconds, where it had rested but five before. Again he felt her breath lightly on his cheek, and he noticed how finely arched and seductive was the curve of her long yellow lashes. He had felt embarrassed and ashamed when Lucia Catherwood saw him there in an attitude of devotion to Mrs. Markham, but that sensation was giving away to stubbornness and anger. If Lucia should turn to someone else, why might not he do the same? Yielding himself to the charms of a perfect face, a low and modulated voice, and a mind that never mistook flippancy and triviality for wit, he met her everywhere on common ground, and she wondered why she had not seen the attractions of this grave, quiet young man long before. Surely such a conquest, and she was not certain yet that it was achieved, was worth a half-dozen victories of the insipid and over-easy kind. An hour later, Prescott was with Lucia for a few minutes, and although no one else was within hearing, their conversation was formal and conventional to the last degree. She spoke of the pleasure of the evening, the brave show made by the Confederacy despite the pressure of the Northern armies, and her admiration for a spirit so gallant. He paid her a few empty compliments, told her she was the shining light among lesser lights, and presently he passed out. He noticed, however, that she was, indeed, as he had said so lightly, the star of the evening. The group around her never thinned, and not only were they admiring, but they were anxious to match wits with her. The men of Richmond applauded, as one by one each of them was worsted in the encounter. At least, they had company in defeat, and after all, defeat at such hands was rather more to be desired than victory. When Prescott left, she was still a center of attraction. Prescott, full of bitterness and having no other way of escape from his entanglement, asked to be sent at once to his regiment in the trenches before Petersburg, but the request was denied him, as it was likely, so he was told, that he would be needed again in Richmond. He said nothing to his mother of his desire to go again to the front, but she saw that he was restless and uneasy, although she asked no questions. He had ample cause to regret the refusal of the authorities to accede to his wish when rumor and vague innuendo concerning himself and Mrs. Markham came to his ears. He wondered that so much had been made of a mere passing incident, but he forgot that his fortunes were intimately connected with those of many others. He passed Harley once in the streets, and the flamboyant soldier favored him with a stare so insolent and persistent that his wrath rose and he did not find it easy to refrain from a quarrel. But he remembered how many names beside his own would be dragged into such an affair, and passed on. 
Helen Harley, too, showed coldness toward him, and Prescott began to have the worst of all feelings, the ones of lonesomeness and abandonment, as if every man's hand was against him. It begot pride, stubbornness, and defiance in him, and he was in this frame of mind when Mrs. Markham, driving her Accomac pony, which somehow had survived a long period of war's dangers, nodded cheerily to him and threw him a warm and ingratiating smile. It was like a shaft of sunshine on a wintry day, and he responded so beamingly that she stopped by the sidewalk and suggested he get into the carriage with her. It was done with such lightness and grace that he scarcely noticed it was an invitation, the request seeming to come from himself. It was a small vehicle with a narrow seat, and they were compelled to sit so close together that he felt the softness and warmth of her body. He was compelled, too, to confess that Mrs. Markham was as attractive by daylight as by lamplight. A fur jacket and a dark dress, both close-fitting, did not conceal the curves of her trim figure. Her cheeks were glowing red, with the rapid motion and the touch of a frosty morning, and the curve of long eyelashes did not wholly hide a pair of eyes that with tempting glances could draw on the suspecting and the unsuspecting alike. Mrs. Markham never looked better, never fresher, never more seductive than on that morning, and Prescott felt, with a sudden excess of pride, that this delightful woman really liked him and considered him worthwhile. That was a genuine tribute, and it did not matter why she liked him. "'May I take the reins?' he asked. "'Oh, no,' she replied, giving him one of those dazzling smiles. "'You would not rob me, would you?' I fancy that I look well driving, and I also get the credit for spirit. I am going shopping. It may seem strange to you that there is anything left in Richmond to buy, or anything to buy it with, but the article that I am in search of is a paper of pins, and I think I have enough money to pay for it. I don't know about that, said Prescott. My friend Talbot gave five hundred dollars for a paper collar. That was last year and paper collars must be dearer now. So I imagine that your paper of pins will cost at least $2,000. I am not so foolish as to go shopping with our Confederate money. I carry gold, she replied. With her disengaged hand, she tapped a little purse she carried in her pocket, and it gave forth an opulent tinkle. She was driving rapidly, chattering incessantly, but in such a gay and light fashion that Prescott's attention never wandered from herself, the red glow of her cheeks, the changing light of her eyes, and the occasional gleam of white teeth as her lips parted in a laugh. Thus he did not notice that she was taking him by a long road, and that one or two whom they passed on the street looked after them in meaning fashion. Prescott was not in love with Mrs. Markham, but he was charmed. Hers was a soft and soothing touch after a hard blow. A healing hand was outstretched to him by a beautiful woman who would be adorable to make love to, if she did not already belong to another man, such an old curmudgeon as General Markham, too. How tightly curled the tiny ringlets on her neck! He was sitting so close he could not help seeing them, and now and then they moved lightly under his breath. He remembered that they were a long time in reaching the shop, but he did not care and said nothing. When they arrived at last, she asked him to hold the lines while she went inside. She returned in a few minutes and triumphantly held up a small package. 
See, she said, I have made my purchase, but it was the last they had, and no one can say when Richmond will be able to import another paper of pins. Maybe we shall have to ask General Grant. And then he won't let us, said Prescott. She laughed and glanced up at him from under the long, curling eyelashes. The green tints showed faintly in her eyes and were singularly seductive. She made no effort to conceal her high good humor, and Prescott now and then felt her warm breath on his cheek as she turned to speak to him in intimate fashion. She drove back by a road not the same, but as long as before, and Prescott found it all too short. His gloom fled away before her flow of spirits, her warm and intimate manner, and the town, though under gray November skies, became vivid with light and color. "'Do you know,' she said, "'that the Mosaic Club meets again tonight, "'and perhaps for the last time? "'Are you not coming?' "'I am not invited. "'But I invite you. "'I have full authority as a member "'and an official of the club.' "'I'm all alone,' said Prescott. "'And so am I,' said she. "'The general, you know, is at the front, "'and no one has been polite enough yet "'to ask to take me.' "'Her look met his with a charming innocence "'like that of a young girl.' but the lurking green depths were in her eyes, and Prescott felt a thrill despite himself. Why not, was his thought. All the others have cast me aside. She chooses me. If I am to be attacked on Mrs. Markham's account, well, I'll give them reason for it. The defiant spirit was speaking then, and he said aloud, If two people are alone, they should go together, and then they won't be alone any more. You have invited me to the club tonight, Mrs. Markham. Now double your benefaction, and let me take you there. On one condition, she said, that we go in my pony carriage. We need no groom. The pony will stand all night in front of Mr. Peyton's house if necessary. Come at eight o'clock. Before she reached her home, she spoke of Lucia Catherwood, as one comes to a subject in the course of a random conversation, and connected her name with that of the secretary, in such a manner that Prescott felt a thrill of anger arise, not against Mrs. Markham, but against Lucia and Mr. Sefton. The remark was quite innocent in appearance, but it coincided so well with his own state of mind in regard to the two that it came to him like a truth. The secretary is very much in love with the beautiful Yankee, said Mrs. Markham. He thought once that he was in love with Helen Harley, but his imagination deceived him. Even so keen a man as the secretary can deceive himself in regard to the gossamer affair that we call love, but his infatuation with Lucia Catherwood is genuine. Will he win her? asked Prescott. Despite himself, his heart throbbed as he waited for her answer. I do not know, she replied, but any woman may be won if a man only knows the way of winning. A Delphic utterance, if ever there was one, he said and laughed partly in relief. She had not said that Mr. Sefton would win her. He left Mrs. Markham at her door and went home, informing his mother by and by that he was going to a meeting of the Mosaic Club in the evening. "'I am to take a lady,' he said. "'A very natural thing for a young man to do,' she replied, smiling at him. "'Who is it to be, Miss Catherwood or Miss Harley?' "'Neither.' "'Neither?' "'No, I am in bad grace with both.' The lady whom I am to have the honor, the privilege, etc., of escorting is Mrs. Markham. Her face fell. 
I'm sorry to hear it, she said frankly. Prescott, for the first time since his childhood, felt some anger towards his mother. Why not, mother? he asked. We are all a great family here together in Richmond. Why, if you trace it back, you'll probably find that every one of us is blood kin to every other one. Mrs. Markham is a woman of wit and beauty, and the honor and privilege of which I spoke so jestingly is a real honor and privilege. She is a married woman, my son, and not careful enough of her actions. Prescott was silent. He felt a marked shyness in discussing such questions with his mother, but his obstinacy and pride remained, even in her mild presence. A few hours later, he put on his cloak and went out in the twilight, walking swiftly toward the well-kept red-brick house of General Charles Markham. A colored maid received him and took him into the parlor, but all was well-ordered and conventional. Mrs. Markham came in before the maid went out and detained her with small duties about the room. Prescott looked around at the apartment and its comfort, even luxury. Report had not wronged General Markham when it accused him of having a quartermaster's interest in his own fortunes. It was not her fault that she became it all wonderfully well, but even as he admired her, he wondered how another would look in the midst of this dusky red luxury, another with the ease and grace of Mrs. Markham herself, with the same air of perfect finish, but taller, of more sumptuous build, and with a nobler face. She, too, would move with soundless steps over the dark red carpet, and were she sitting there before the fire, with the glow of the coals falling at her feet, the room would need no other presence. A penny for your thoughts, Mr. Wiseman, she said. My reward should be greater, he said, fibbing without conscience, because I was thinking of you. In that event, we should be starting, she said lightly. Ben Butler and the family coach are at the door, and if you deem yourself capable of it, Sir Knight, I think that I shall let you drive this evening. He would be a poor captain who could not guide a vessel with such a precious cargo, said Prescott gallantly. You forget that you are part of the cargo. But I don't count. Again, it was you of whom I was thinking. She settled herself into the phaeton beside him, very close. It could not be otherwise. And Ben Butler, the Accomac pony, obedient to the will of Prescott, rattled away through the street. He recalled how long she had been in reaching the shop by day, and how long also in returning. And now the spirit of wickedness lay hold of him. He would do likewise. He knew well where the house of Daniel Payton stood, having been in it many times before the war, but he chose a course toward it that bent like the curve of a semicircle, and the innocent woman beside him took no notice. The night was dark and frosty, with a wind out of the northwest that moaned among the housetops, but Prescott, with a beautiful woman by his side, was warm and cozy in the phaeton, with her dark wrap and the dark of the night around them, she was almost invisible save her face, in which her eyes, with the lurking green shadows yet in them, shone when she looked up at him. Ben Butler was a capable pony, and he paid habitual deference to the wishes of his mistress, the result of long training. As he progressed at a gentle walk, Prescott scarcely needed one hand for his guidance. It was this lack of occupation that caused the other to wander into dangerous proximity to the neat and well-gloved fingers of Mrs. Markham, which were not far away in the first place.
You should not do that, she said, removing her hand. But Prescott was not sorry. He did not forget the thrill given him by the pleasant contact, and he was neither apologetic nor humble. The lady was not too angry, but there appeared to Prescott a reproachful shadow, that of another woman, taller and nobler of face and manner, and despite his manhood years, he blushed in the darkness. A period of constraint followed, and he was so silent, so undemonstrative, that the lady gave him a glance of surprise. Her hand strayed back to its former place of easy approach, but Prescott was busy with Ben Butler, and he yielded only when she placed her hand upon his arm, being forced by a sudden jolt of the phaeton to lean more closely against him. But fortunately or unfortunately, they were now in front of the Peyton house, and the lights were shining from every window. Prescott stepped out of the phaeton and tied Ben Butler to the hitching post. Then he assisted Mrs. Markham to the ground, and together the two entered the portico. "'We are late,' said Prescott, and he felt annoyance because of it. "'It does not matter,' she said lightly, feeling no annoyance at all. He knew that their late entrance would attract marked notice to them, and now he felt a desire to avoid such attention. But she would make of it a special event, a function. Despite Prescott's efforts, she marshaled herself and himself in such masterly fashion that every eye in the room was upon them as they entered, and none could help noticing that they came as an intimate pair, or at least the skillful lady made it seem so. These two were the last. All the members of the club and their guests were already there, and despite the bond of fellowship and union among them, many eyebrows were lifted, and some asides were spoken as Mrs. Markham and Prescott arrived in this fashion. Lucia Catherwood was present, Raymond had brought her, but she took no notice, though her bearing was high and her color brilliant. Someone had prepared her for this evening with careful and loving hands. Perhaps it was Miss Grayson. All the minute touches that count for so much were there, and in her eyes was some of the bold and reckless spirit that Prescott himself had been feeling for the last day or two. This little company had less of partisan rancor, less of sectional feeling, than any other in Richmond, and that night they made the beautiful Yankee their willing queen. She fell in with their spirit. There was nothing that she did not share and lead. She improvised rhymes, deciphered puzzles, and prepared others of her own that rivaled in ingenuity the best of Randolph or Caskey or Latham or McCarty or any of the other clever leaders of this bright company. Prescott saw the wit and beauty of Mrs. Markham pale before the brighter sun, and the secretary seemed to be the chosen favorite of Miss Catherwood. He warmed under her favoring glance, and he too brought forth ample measure from the store of his wit. Harley was there in splendid uniform, as always, but somber and brooding. Prescott clearly saw danger on the man's brow, but a threat, even one unspoken, always served to arouse him, and he returned with renewed devotion to Mrs. Markham. His growing dislike for Harley was tinctured with a strain of contempt. He accused the man's vanity and selfishness, but he forgot at the same moment that he was falling into the same pit. The men presently withdrew for a few moments into the next room, where the host had prepared something to drink, and a good-natured, noisy crowd was gathered around the table. The noisiest of them all was Harley, 
whose manner was aggressive and whose face was inflamed, as if he had made himself an undisputed champion at the bowl. The secretary was there, too, saying nothing, his thin lips wrinkled in a slight smile of satisfaction. He was often pleased with himself, rarely more so than tonight, with the memory of Lucia Catherwood's glorious brow and eyes, and the obvious favor that she showed him. He was a fit mate for her, and she must see it. Wisdom and love should go together. Truly, all things were moving well with him, he repeated in his thought. Prescott was following the very course he would have chosen for him, kneeling at Mrs. Markham's feet, as if she were a new Calypso. The man whom he knew to be his rival was about to embroil himself with everybody. If he wanted more evidence of his last inference, Harley of the inflamed face and threatening brow was quick to furnish. When Prescott came in, Harley took another long draft and said to the crowd, I have a pretty bit of gossip for you, gentlemen. What is it? asked Randolph, and all looked up, eager to hear any fresh and interesting news. It's the story of the spy who was here last winter, replied Harley. The romance, rather, because that spy, as all of you know, was a woman. The story will not down. It keeps coming up, although we have a great war all about us, and I hear that the government, so long on a blind trial, has at last struck the right one. Indeed, said Randolph with increased interest. What is it? The answer to that puzzle has always bothered me. They say that the spy was a woman of great beauty, and she found it impossible to escape from Richmond until an officer of ours, yielding to her claims, helped her through the lines. I'll wager that he took full pay for his trouble. His honor against hers, said someone. Harley laughed coarsely. Prescott became deathly white. He would have fought a duel then with Harley, on the instant. All the Puritan training given him by his mother and his own civilized instincts were swept away by a sudden overwhelming rush of passion. His color came back, and none noticed its momentary loss, all eyes being on Harley. Prescott glanced at Mr. Sefton, but the secretary remained calm, composed, and smiling, listening to Harley with the same air of interested curiosity shown by the others. Prescott saw it all with a flash of intuition. The secretary had given Harley a hint, just a vague generalization, within the confines of truth, but without any names, enough to make those concerned uneasy, but not enough to put the power in any hands save those of the secretary. Harley himself confirmed that by continuing the subject, although somewhat uncertainly, as if he were no longer sure of his facts. It occurred to Prescott that he might borrow this man's own weapons and fight him with the cold brain and craft that had proved so effective against himself, Robert Prescott. But when he turned to look at the secretary, he found Mr. Sefton looking at him. A glance that was a mingling of fire and steel passed between the two. It was also a look of understanding. Prescott knew, and the secretary saw that he knew. In the bosom of James Sefton, respect rose high for the young man whom he had begun to hold rather cheap lately. His antagonist was clearly worthy of him. Harley rambled on. He looked uncertainly now and then at Prescott, as if he believed him to be the traitorous offer, and would provoke him into a reply. 
but Prescott's face was a perfect mask, and his manner careless and indifferent. The suspicions of the others were not aroused, and Harley was not well enough informed to go further, but his look, whenever it fell on Robert, was full of hatred, and Prescott marked it well. "'What do you think of a fellow who would do such a thing?' asked Harley at last. "'I've a pretty good opinion of him,' said Raymond quietly. "'You have?' exclaimed Harley. "'I have,' repeated Raymond, "'and I'm willing to say it before a man high in the government like Mr. Sefton here. "'Are all the powers of the Confederate government "'to be gathered for the purpose of making war on one poor lone woman? "'Suppose we whip Grant first and bother about the woman afterward?' I think I'll write an editorial on the government's lack of chivalry. That is, I will when I get enough paper to print it on, but I don't know when that will be. However, I'll keep it in mind till that time arrives. I think you are wrong, said the secretary smoothly, as one who discusses ethics and not personalities. This man had his duty to do, and however small that duty may have been, he should have done it. "'You generalize, and since you are laying down a rule, you are right,' said Raymond. "'But this is a particular case and an exception. "'We owe some duties to the feminine gender as well as to patriotism. "'The greater shouldn't always be swallowed up in the lesser.' "'There was a laugh, and Winthrop suggested that, as they were talking of the ladies, "'they should return to them. "'On the way, Prescott casually joined the secretary.' "'Can I see you in the office tomorrow, Mr. Sefton?' he asked. "'Certainly,' replied the secretary. "'Will three in the afternoon do? Alone, I suppose.' "'Thank you,' said Prescott. Three in the afternoon, and alone will do.' Both spoke quietly, but the swift look of understanding passed once more. Then they rejoined the ladies. Prescott had not spoken to Lucia Catherwood in the whole course of the evening, but now he sought her. Some of the charm which Mrs. Markham so lately had for him was passing. In the presence of Lucia she seemed less fair, less winning, less true. His own conduct appeared to him in another light, and he would turn aside from his vagrant fancy to the one to whom his heart was yet loyal. But he found no chance to speak to her alone. The club, by spontaneous agreement, had chosen to make her its heroine of that night, and Prescott was permitted only to be one of the circle, nothing more. As such, she spoke to him occasionally, as she would to others, chance remarks without color or emphasis, apparently directed toward him because he happened to be sitting at that particular point, and not because of his personality. Prescott chafed and sought to better his position, wishing to have an individuality of his own in her regard, but he could not change the colorless role which she assigned him. So he became silent, speaking only when some remark was obviously intended for him, and watched her face and expression. He had always told himself that her dominant characteristic was strength, power of will, endurance. But now, as he looked, he saw once or twice a sudden droop, faint but discernible, as if for a flitting moment she grew too weak for her burden. Prescott felt a great excess of pity and tenderness. She was in a position into which no woman should be forced, and she was assailed on all sides by danger. Her very name was at the mercy of the secretary, and now Harley, with his foolish talk, might at any time bring an avalanche down upon her. He himself had treated her badly, and would help her if he could. He
he turned to find Mrs. Markham at his elbow. We are going into supper, she said, and you will have to take me. Thus they passed in before Lucia Catherwood's eyes, but she looked over them and came presently with Raymond. That was a lean supper. The kitchens of Richmond in the last year of the war provided little, but Prescott was unhappy for another reason. He was there with Mrs. Markham, and she seemed to claim him as her own before all those, save his mother, for whom he cared most. General Wood and Helen Harley were across the table, her pure eyes looking up with manifest pleasure into the dark ones of the leader, which could shine so fiercely on the battlefield, but were now so soft. Once Prescott caught the general's glance, and it was full of wonder. Intrigue and the cross-play of feminine purposes were unknown worlds to the simple mountaineer. Prescott passed from silence to a feverish and uncertain gaiety, talking more than anyone at the table, an honor that he seldom coveted. Some of his jests and epigrams were good, and more were bad, but all passed current at such a time, and Mrs. Markham, who was never at a loss for something to say, seconded him in able fashion. The secretary, listening and looking, smiled quietly. Gone to his head, foolish fellow, was what his manner clearly expressed. Prescott himself saw it at last and experienced a sudden check, remembering his resolve to fight this man with his own weapons, while here he was only an hour later behaving like a wild boy on his first escapade. He passed at once from garrulity to silence, and the contrast was so marked that the glances exchanged by the others increased. Prescott was still taciturn when, at a late hour, he helped Mrs. Markham into the phaeton, and they started to her home. He fully expected that Harley would overtake him when he turned away from her house and seek a quarrel, but the fear of physical harm scarcely entered into his mind. It was the gossip and the linking of names in the gossip that troubled him. Mrs. Markham sat as close to him as ever. The little Phaeton had grown no wider, but though he felt again her warm breath on his cheek, no pulse stirred. "'Why are you so silent, Captain Prescott?' she asked. "'Are you thinking of Lucia Catherwood?' "'Yes,' he replied frankly. "'I was.' She glanced up at him, but his face was hidden in the darkness. She was looking very beautiful tonight, she said, and she was supreme. All the men, and I must say it, all of us women, too, acknowledged her rule. But I do not wonder that she attracts the masculine mind. Her beauty, her bearing, her mysterious past constitute the threefold charm to which all of you men yield, Captain Prescott. I wish I knew her history. It could only be to her credit said Prescott. She glanced up at him again, and now the moonlight falling upon his face enabled her to see it set and firm, and Mrs. Markham felt that there had been a change. He was not the same man who had come with her to the meeting of the club, but she was not a woman to relinquish easily a conquest or a half-conquest, and she called to her aid all the art of a strong and cultivated mind. She was bold and original in her methods, and did not leave the subject of Lucia Catherwood, but praised her, though now and then with slight reservations, letting fall the inference that she was her good friend and would be a better one if she could. Such use did she make of her gentle and unobtrusive sympathy 
that Prescott felt his heart warming once more to this handsome and accomplished woman. "'You will come to see me again?' she said at the door, letting a little hand linger a few moments in his. "'I fear that I may be sent at once to the front. But if you are not, you will come?' she persisted. "'Yes,' said Prescott, and bade her good night.' 